0: Well, like most of us this time of year, I'm had a week of battling some sickness, but I asked the Lord to give me just what I needed to make it through today, and I trust that that's going to be the case. Uh, But before we uh, look at the word together, let me open our time in prayer. Father, I am grateful to be here. Thank you for your sustenance, for your healing power at work. Thank you for uh, the ways in which you continue. to use your word, to speak to the hearts of your people, to the praise and glory of your name. And Lord, I ask that this morning as we see what is an amazing passage of scripture, seeing the evidence of your hand of sovereignty and the minute details of history, that we would take that to heart and know that that same God is involved in the minute details of our everyday lives, that we would rest in the security of your sovereignty and the hope of your promises fulfilled. We pray this in your name. Amen. So our passage this morning really is amazing. And if I do my job well, or at least halfway decent, uh, I expect that you'll be fascinated and amazed yourself. Because the interkeys of these uh, details of these, prof- these prophecies are not only accurate, they are precise, So much so that critics look at these verses and say, can't possibly be true. This is one of those passages that critics of the Bible will look at to prove that the Bible is not true. And the reason they do that is they argue that there's no possible way that these events could be told in such intricate detail with such incredible accuracy. Their claim is the only way that this is possibly true is if they were written after the fact so that they could look back in history and then point to those same facts. But in doing so, that would invalidate the authenticity of the book of Daniel altogether. In my opinion, it's an argument out of arrogance. Because basically what it's saying is if I can't explain it, then it must not be true. But what if? What if there was a God who exists who's greater than you? Who is infinite beyond what we could ask or imagine? What if he does things that our finite minds can't explain? Now, as a Christian, we know that's true, right? So we, we can look at a passage like this and go, of course our God can do that. I mean, the Bible boldly proclaims, does it not, that nothing is impossible with God? So knowing this is true, I hope that what we look at in our passage this morning will in fact strengthen your faith, that you really will find a deep and abiding security in the incredibly loving sovereignty of God, because the God who directs the details of human history is the same God who is directing the details of your everyday life as well. So before we begin, I want you to know that we're not going to be covering all 35 verses like you see in your outline this morning. That was my original plan. But during the week as I got to preparing, I thought there's no way we're going to be able to do this. And so instead of trying to rush through to, to follow my plan, I felt like it was good to divide it up. This is part one, and we'll finish the remaining verses next week in part two. But as we do get started, I want to remind you of what Daniel said beginning In chapter 10, the introduction to the vision that we will now look at in detail. There at the end of that verse, he says, he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. And as we talked about last week, it's not because he could fully comprehend the details of these future events, okay? But what he did understand is he had a strong conviction of the, the sovereignty of God at work in human history. He knew that God was in control. That's what he was convinced of. That's what he understood. The other thing that's unique about our passage this morning is it doesn't have a lot of the apocalyptic symbolism like we've seen in some of the other dreams and visions that Daniel has had up to this point. And so there are no statues, there's no lopsided bears, no lions with wings. Instead, what we see here are worldwide events, not unlike what Daniel has probably experienced in his own lifetime, where we see nations rising against nations as there's this power for struggle and control. With that being said, I'm going to begin reading in verse 2, and the reason I'm starting there is because that's really where the chapter division takes place. Verse 1 technically belongs in the previous section, but for ease of Our understanding. Let's start in verse two, and I invite you to read with me uh, in verse two. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, there were there and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia, then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise. And he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he is risen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass. Though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside him. So in verse 2, we learn that there were three more kings and then a fourth. And knowing, as we do because of what we learned in chapter 10, Daniel's writing this during the reign of King Cyrus. So if we follow the lineage of Persian kings after King Cyrus, the fourth king would be a king by the name of King Xerxes. Now that name might sound familiar to you. Do you know where King Xerxes shows up in the Bible? Esther. It's the same one. That's King Xerxes. The angel says that Xerxes is the one who awakens the giant. Those are my words. We'll understand why. The reason is is that he he led an army that was greater than any one that had been seen in the ancient world at that time. He assembled this army to confront the, the realm of Greece that was growing and strengthening with power, but to no avail. He didn't win. The only thing he did was stir up the animosity that would eventually become the demise of the Medo-Persian Empire. Because in time, as we see in her passage, a mighty king will arise. And that king, of course, is who? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Now, let me pause here to explain an important aspect of prophetic literature. As we read these events we often assume that they occur in linear sequence where one happens immediately following the previously described event. But that's often not the case. Instead, I want you to think about like standing, if you were standing on a mountain peak, okay? And let's say you're standing on a mountain peak and you're looking into the distance, seeing the peaks of other mountains that are close together. Now, they may appear to be close together, but you know that there's a lot of distance in between those two peaks, right? Well, it's the same idea here. Even though we see these prophetic events in sequence very often, there is space in between them. And I'll point that out as we go. In fact, one of them occurs right here with King Xerxes. Because as we see in our passage, the events of his life are described immediately followed by the rise of this king, Alexander the Great. Well, those things didn't happen in direct sequence. There were actually eight other Persian kings in between Xerxes and Alexander the Great. But they're mountain peaks of prophecy that we are being told about. See, Xerxes may have started the fight when he... Built this army to go against Greece, but it was Alexander the Great who would ultimately finish the war and conquer the Medo Persian Empire. And when he did, as the scripture tells us, he ruled with great authority and did as he pleased, like we see in verse 3. But at the peak of his dominion, we know historically that he mysteriously died. Verse 4 says that his kingdom was broken up and parceled toward the four points of the compass, so north, south, east, and west. We know that because he mysteriously died, he had no ability to name a successor, so it didn't go to any of his descendants. In fact, those descendants were killed, and that land, that territory that he had conquered, was now divided between four of his generals. And the territory expanded from the north to the south to the east and to the west. It was the largest empire the world had ever known at that time. Now look at verse 5. Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. So the first thing I want you to know is that it's important to understand that the land divided up from Alexander the Great's territory was not four equal parts. In fact, there were two dominant kingdoms that uh, took control of most of that territory. As you can see, the light blue is the uh, northern kingdom, according to what we're going to read in Scripture. That's the Seleucids, okay? Okay. So if you ever heard of the Seleucid dynasty, it's talking about this northern kingdom within the territory of Alexander the Great. The southern kingdom are the Ptolemies. It's kind of confusing because it starts with a P, so it's not Ptolemy, it's the Ptolemies, okay? So the Ptolemies are to the south, the Seleucids are to the north. And I want you to look real closely. <laughs> Who squeezed right in between these two major empires? Israel. <laughs> Israel is squeezed right in the middle of these two empires. And they're going to be right in the mix of this tug of war of power, as we will see as the story goes on. Verse 5 says, the king of the south will grow strong. Remember, who was the king of the south? Ptolemy, right? It was the Ptolemy dynasty. There was several that fall into that family lineage, but it began with King Ptolemy. We know that he was powerful because the Egypt was a very powerful uh, country within the ancient world. And that continued during this time. But it also says that there was someone, a prince, it's described, who was under Ptolemy, who will ascend and gain dominion. It says that his territory will be expansive, which you could see if you remember from the picture, that northern kingdom was huge, wasn't it? So that was true. The king of the north, as we already said, was Seleucid. What we need to understand here, according to what we're reading in Scripture, we can base historically on the fact that we know that formerly a lieutenant under Ptolemy was Seleucid. So he was a prince underneath Ptolemy in Alexander the Great's army, but then he grew to be bigger than the one he had once served by becoming the king of the northern kingdom. And he had grown to be superior to the one he had once served. Like verse 5 says, he gained ascendancy and his dominion will be great indeed. Now look at verse 6. After some years, they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south Will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. But she will be given up, along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. Now, this verse begins with After some years, what that's telling us is a clue that we're moving to another peak of prophecy because there's time in between where we last left off and where we are now, and some of the players have changed. So following Ptolemy I was the ruler Ptolemy II. Following Seleucid I, there was another ruler in the north. His name was Antiochus, Antiochus I. And these two kings, we know historically, did not get along with each other. In fact, they found themselves in this ongoing battle that had been lasting for up to 12 years by this time. And finally, they looked at each other and said, enough is enough. We've we've got to come to a point where we can make a truce. And so that's what they decided to do. That alliance, as we see in verse 6, was a truce that was sealed with a marriage. Now, that's not uncommon during ancient times to have these truces, these treaties of peace sealed with a marriage, which is what happens here. We know that historically this happened. Ptolemy gave his daughter, her name was Berenice, to marry Antiochus, the king of the north. But here's the problem. Antiochus was already married to a woman named Laodicea, for whom he named the city Laodicea. Where do y'all remember that one from? The book of Revelation, right? That's where one of the Seven churches is Laodicea. Well, this is where it got its name. That's bonus information. It really has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I think it's interesting. So here's what Antiochus did. He decided to uh, give into the the treaty of peace instead of continuing in his marriage, and he divorces Laodice in order to marry Berenice, the daughter of the king of the south. And again, this marriage was intended to secure this treaty of peace between these two kingdoms. But after two years, Antiochus had second thoughts. He kind of missed his first wife and wasn't really getting along with Berenice, so he puts her aside and chooses to remarry Laotus. And that's why we see in verse 6 that it says that she, Berenice, did not maintain her position is because she had been put aside by Antiochus, the king. Now, hell hath no fury like the scorn of a woman, right? And Laotus never forgot the betrayal. And so what ended ended up happening, again, historically true, in an act of revenge, she poisoned Antiochus, and he died. And not only did she murder her husband, But she went on to kill Berenice and the son that she had had with Antiochus, and they were both dead. So clearly the treaty that originally was intended to be sealed with this marriage is now completely broken, all right? And and animosity will now enter back into the scene. Look at verse 7. But one of the descendants of her, speaking of uh, Berenice, one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place. And he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also, their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he will, in his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but he will return to his own land." Okay, so what we're learning here is that there is a descendant, Ptolemy III, who is the brother of Berenice, and he sets out to avenge her death. He was victorious. We know that he gained some territory in that northern kingdom, and when he returned to Egypt, as we see in verse 8, he came back with idols and articles of worship and, and medals of precious gold and, and silver. Verse 9 says that the the latter king, which is referring to the king of the north, as we see at the end of the verse 8, he makes a weak attempt to retaliate, but he has to return to his own land, a defeated man, because he gains no ground. Now, I want to pause here. Everybody take a deep breath. It's a lot of information, isn't it? Those Those are a lot. That's a flood of historical facts. But don't forget, we're talking about a prophecy that was written hundreds of years before any of these events ever happened. So it's it's identifying kings and kingdoms. It's pointing to marriages and betrayal. All of these details have been validated through the evidence of ancient history. And we are reading them before they would have ever occurred. Are you amazed yet? If you're not, hang in there because there's more to come. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may again wage war upon his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north, then the latter that is the king of the south will raise oh excuse me the king of the north will raise a great multitude but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former the king of the south when the multitude is carried away his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall yet will not prevail so remember we talked about in the beginning where he had these two kingdoms these major kingdoms within that alexander the great's uh, territory. And these northern and southern kingdoms are always warring against each other, and in between is Israel, who's in the middle of that tug of war. We see that's what's happening here. In verse 10, his sons is referring to the king of the north. And we know that there were several generations that continued this battle for supremacy with the southern kingdom. The most notable of these sons was one by the name of Antiochus III also known as Antiochus the Great. Now, Antiochus the Great would become a very skilled ruler and a very strategic military person. But he had to learn because he was young and he didn't always get it right. Early on, we learn in our passage that he did gain territory in the southern kingdom, which included Palestine, where Israel is located. As we see in verse 11... This enraged the king of the south. That's Ptolemy, specifically Ptolemy IV. And it resulted in a major counterattack. So Ptolemy IV, the king of the south, rages this army together, and they meet in what was known as the Battle of Raphia. And in this battle, the king of the south dominates the king of the north, Antiochus. And on his way back into Egypt... He decides to drop by Jerusalem to celebrate his victory. In verse 12, we read that his heart was raised up, which means he was filled with pride and with with arrogance. And so what he does is he enters the Jewish temple, the holy place. And when he does, he is confronted by the high priest at that time. Again, we we know this is true from... From history. He confront, he's confronted by the high priest who says, you can't go into this holy place because it is sacred. But this is a pagan king, and he could care less. And so he took great offense to this confrontation, and he turns his anger on the Jewish people, which is why we see that in our passages it says he caused tens of thousands to fall. That means that there were a number of Jews that were killed in re- retaliation. From Ptolemy the fourth, but the king's anger would not prevail. This is not the end of the story. God's plan for His people would continue. Look at verse thirteen: for the king of the north will again raise a great multitude than the former. So this is speaking of Antiochus the third, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now, in those times, many will raise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. And then the king of the north will come, cast a siege ramp, and capture the well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he will come against him and will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. And he will stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. It goes on in verse 17. He will set his face to come with power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face and turn toward fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place will arise one who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet without, within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. Okay, so a lot of details here. In verse 13, we leap to another peak because there's about 14-year gap between where the last event happened and what's being described in verse 13. Some people are the same, like Antiochus the Great is still king of the north. And so What we learn here is that Antiochus the Great, remember, he failed early on but learned from his mistakes, and so now he's formed another army. It's a greater army than the one he's had before, and he's going to war against the king of the south. He may have been beaten at the Battle of Raphia, but he has learned from his mistakes. And one of the things that he does to gain strength is he formed alliances with other nations. That's why it says that there were others who joined him who came against the king of the south. In verse 14, it says, the angel says, some violent ones of your people will rise up. Now, since this angel, who's giving the details of this prophetic vision, is talking to Daniel, we know that your people is referring to the Jews. And historically, we know that there was a small Jewish contingent that rose up against Antiochus as he made his way into the kingdom of the south. But as you can imagine, it didn't last very long because his army was overpowering, and massive. So he just continues on through Jerusalem on his way into the southern kingdom. He continued his campaign, and this time he was very successful. As we see in verse 15, he laid siege to some of Egypt's strongest strongholds, and the southern kingdom could not make a stand even with their choicest troops. So the same men who were victorious in the past now can't stand against Antiochus during this battle. So Antiochus expands his territory, included, as we see in our passage, the beautiful land, which is referring to Israel. finally reaching a point where he's ready to make peace. We see that in verse 17. Like we've seen before, this treaty, this peace treaty, was ratified through a marriage was ratified through a marriage. And so when he did this, Antiochus gives his daughter to the king of the south in return for peace. But we need to understand that there's always these little angles and ploys that are taking place. Antiochus had an agreement with his daughter that she would go in really as a spy. And he w- she would enter into this marriage with the king of the south, but he was going to use that relationship to ultimately ruin him. That's what it says in our passage. He was going to bring ruin to the king of the south through his daughter who was given to him in marriage. But here's the problem. She did not comply. She was a woman of her own means and decided that she would not stand with her father. Her daughter's name was Cleopatra. Now, it's not the one you may be thinking of. She is Cleopatra I, the first in a long line of Egyptian princes, uh, uh, Egyptian princes of the Nile. Uh, uh, Cleopatra VII is the one that is most famous. She's the one who had the love affair with Julius Caesar, went on to marry Mark Anthony, and there are movies written about her, and you know her story. That's Cleopatra. But this is One of her foremothers, I guess you would say, Cleopatra I. Here's another interesting fact. Again, this is bonus material. I hope you're finding this interesting because I think it's fascinating, all right? So this marriage between Cleopatra and this king of the south had an, an incredible ceremony attached to it. Okay? They made a big deal out of this. They paraded him through the streets. They coronated him as king at the end. And all of these events are recorded historically in three different languages on the same tablet. That stone, when these events were recorded, was discovered in the 18. 18- Hundreds, and it became an incredibly important tool in deciphering ancient languages, especially Egyptian hieroglyphics, which are just symbols. And nobody had any idea what that meant until this stone was found. That stone is the Rosetta Stone. And now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> so, back to our story. Since his original plan backfired, Antiochus turned his face to the coastlands, as we see in verse 18. Instead of going south, he went west. And so the coastlands are the territory to the west that Alexander the Great had once conquered. And now Antiochus wants that land for himself. So he moves west to conquer land in that direction. He continued to expand successfully until he came across a commander, as we see in our passage, who put an end to his scorn. So he met somebody that he could not defeat. This commander was a military commander in the Roman army. And not only was Antiochus defeated, he was now required to pay tribute to Rome in his defeat. So as we see in verse 19, He turns his face to return to his land, but we know that he did so in disgrace, having been defeated. And then he had to put a heavy tax burden on his people in order to pay for that tribute that now he owed to Rome. And shortly after that, it says that he was found no more, which means that Antiochus died. In verse 20, we see that there was another king who came in his place the descendant whose name was Seleucus IV. Like Antiochus, he was an oppressive ruler, but for the same reason. He had to also put a tax burden on the people in order to pay for this cumbersome, uh, burdening tribute that was required of Rome. And he put this burden on even the jewel of his kingdom, which is referring to the city of Jerusalem. In fact, in desperation, we know that this king sent an envoy into Jerusalem to rob the treasury of the temple. This created a rift within the Jewish community and two distinct factions. Now, y'all hang with me here because this is important because we'll see this play out in biblical history. This event caused two distinct factions to form within Jerusalem. There was one which was a more liberal group, okay? They weren't too concerned about maintaining Jewish tradition. In fact, they were embracing much of the Hellenistic, the Greek influences, and they looked at this situation and said, we need to give this king whatever he wants in exchange for his protection. That group was known as the Tobiads, and they would later become the Sadducees. The other group was much more conservative. They were unwilling to defile the sacred practices, And they worked hard to preserve the integrity of all that God had called his people to do and what he had called them to be. They were the Ananiads. They were the early predecessors of who? Pharisees. This is where it began. At the end of verse 20, we see that Seleucus, the king of the north, will be shattered. But it says, but not by battle or by anger. We know historically it was from jealousy because Seleucus was assassinated. Now, we'll end there. That's a lot of information for one morning, isn't it? But isn't that fascinating? Just to see all the intricate details of this prophecy that were reliably and completely fulfilled. Do you see why the critics have trouble with this passage? It's why they look at it and say, there's no way this can be true of somebody giving such detail at events before they ever happened. They had to have been written after they already occurred. But we know that that's not true. I think this, is, this prophecy is probably unlike anything we have in Scripture, at least of those that we can look at with history reliably attesting to the details. And so if you ever need to prove the sovereignty of God at work in the lives of human history, here's your passage. This is a good place to go. But it's important to not only be amazed, but to also be comforted, because the God who directs the course of history is the same God who's at work at directing the details in your life as well. And there is no detail too small for him, including the detail of you being here this morning. <laughs> including the detail of who you're interacting with and what influences are happening in your life. He knows the trouble that we face in this world And our God wants to lead us to a place of hope. And passages like this should direct us to that place because it reminds us that he is sovereignly in control. Ultimately, he wants us to find hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, this world is not all that different than what we saw in Daniel's day, is it? I mean, we still have nations rising against nations. We still have wars and rumors of wars. We still have all this unrest, even in our own country. But we know that Scripture tells us Jesus came to rescue us from this present evil age. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Everything God has done in the events of human history is intended to point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's our rescue. Passages like we looked at today are not just there to impress us. They're there to convince us that God is in control and he is faithful to fulfill his promises. Because of his sovereignty, we can be certain that everything he says is absolutely true, including 1 John 5.11, where he says, God has given us eternal life, and that life is in his son. I said at the beginning that I, I hope passages like this help strengthen your faith. I hope you find deep and abiding security within the undeniable sovereignty of God, because the God of This world who directs the details of human history is the same God who is at work in our individual lives. The same God who brought forth his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And every detail of human history is intended to point to that promise fulfilled in him. So this week I want to encourage you to look at a passage and just spend some time meditating on it. It's in uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 46 verses 9 and 10. I'm going to read it to you now, but write that down. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. And I'd encourage you just to spend some time looking through the passage this week. It says this, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This is not only true of God's work in the world and in the details of human history, but it's true in our lives as well. So let's remember that as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the truth of this amazing passage. I do pray that we don't get lost in too many of the details to see the one who orchestrated them all. The one who said that these things were going to occur and now we can look at history and see that every one of them were fulfilled from kings to kingdoms to marriages to betrayal to assassinations. All of the things that you said would come to pass have been as exactly as you said they would be. And Lord, I just hope that having looked at this passage to see the fulfillment of your promises in the past, that we would have great confidence in the assurance of hope of the fulfillment of your promises, yet future. The things that are still yet to come that you've promised will take place and that we can put our trust in you, the one who fulfills them. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing together. Well, I know for me personally, this was one of the more challenging but fulfilling passages I've ever studied for. I'm not sure what it was like to listen to, <laughs> but it is fascinating because I took the Bible and looked at the events that were being scribed, and I took a history book and looked at what happened in history, and I said, okay, this is what it says, and I looked over and it says, oh, well, that's exactly what happened, and this is what it says, oh, and that's exactly what happened. It's really, truly fascinating. But, but I, I want to remind you again not to get too lost in how incredible these details are, details are that have in fact unfolded, but just remember that this was a prophecy spoken to Daniel through an angel sent by God who gave him the very details of events hundreds of years before they ever occurred, and he's doing that to ensure the understanding for you and I to know that he is sovereignly in control, that he is faithful to fulfill his promises from the very beginning until the very end. And we can rest in the sovereignty of a loving God, and that's why this is important. Does that make sense? So as you go throughout your week, be amazed as you continue to see his hand at work even today. Amen? Amen. Have a great day.